Hello and welcome to Modern Musicology. I am joined, as always, by my two co-hosts, Anthony. Good evening, afternoon, morning, whenever you're listening. Goodly whatever. <laughs> and Rob. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. <laughs> all right. So this week we are going to be talking about concept albums. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, Anthony and I did a, 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 a separate episode on two metal albums having big anniversaries. One was Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden, and the other one was Crimson Idol by Wasp, and uh, Wasp album being a concept album. And I was thinking, you know what? We should really talk about the whole concept of concept albums. So that's what we're going to be doing this week. Um, I'm interested to know, first of all, uh, concept albums is something that I, I absolutely love. I love a good collection of songs, but when that collection of songs you know, works together to tell a story, I, I'm all in. Good or bad or mediocre, I'm pretty much you know going to be in on it. So I want to know from, from all of us here, what do you think makes a successful concept album? Is it the is it the quality of the songs? Is it the quality of the story being told? Uh, what do you think? So I think quality of the songs is a must regardless. I mean, it's going to be a bad album, whether it's a concept album or not, if the songs aren't good. I think there are two types of concept albums. There are those that have a very, very strict, well, not, not strict, that's probably the wrong word, but a very strong story to them mm -hmm. that, weaves throughout and then you have others that are probably better termed as thematic concept Ag albums where it's not necessarily a story but it's all songs around the same theme um i think either way commitment to what the band is doing is a must so if you're going to do the full-on story it's got to have a strong story if you're going to do the thematic version you got to stick to that theme. You can't just do, here's eight songs on this theme and two about other stuff because we don't feel like committing to it. I think, I think <laughs> it's a commitment to what the band sets out to do. And that's interesting because I've got a couple examples of exactly what you're talking about uh, later on in the show. So, Rob, what do you think? Um, pretty much what he said. Um, I, I like bands when they do concept albums to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I want the track order to flow. I want... You know, they can be a little creative. They can be a little different from what they normally do. It can sound, you know, kind of clunky in places as long as it fits the general order of, of how it's supposed to be. And I want the concept to be interesting. I don't want it to just be like, we just put a section of songs out and we're going to call it a concept album. Because that's been done, too, where they just have a bunch of songs and it's like, oh, it's a concept album. You know, you, you figure it out. You know, I hate that. Uh, but that does happen. You know, I, I don't want the concept album to be like the, the cop out. Right. Um, which sadly, sometimes it is more more or less than, than than it does. But I do want a good set of songs. I want the narrative to be interesting and I want to be innovative. And, I you know, I want them to um, take some chances with it. You know, do something interesting. Tell some interesting stories. And and that's something that we talked about when we did our our metal yeah. album uh, show a few weeks ago, was that I just didn't think that the Crimson Idol storyline was all that interesting, you know. I think that, um, and I remember saying there's a there's a like a narrative piece, a 16 minute thing where Blackie in character is 
basically telling the story of his main character. And I found that much more interesting than the actual, even though the songs were good, I didn't find the narrative to be as, as engaging as some of the other concept albums that I love. Yeah. And I, I think I said at the time with that one, Alan, part of that was studio pressure to get it out. The yeah. re-recorded version he's done has about five extra tracks, which fleshes out a bit more. Right, right, right. So as I was thinking about this and I was kind of like putting together a list of the ones that I wanted to talk about, I was trying to think what would end up on your lists. And so I've got a couple of predictions. So I don't want to like do any spoilers or whatever. And I don't want to jump the gun on anything that you want to say for later in the show. But I I only have a couple of ones. Um, Well, I, I have two for Anthony. I okay. know I'm pretty sure you're going to bring up Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Yep, that's on my list. And I'm pretty sure you're going to bring up Operation Mind Crime. That is also <laughs> on my list. <laughs> and Rob, I'm pretty sure that you will that you have Sergeant Pepper on your list. It shouldn't be on everybody's. It should. It's, it should. It, it's kind it, of, you know, it's kind it's of It's not the, on my I mean it's on my list if nobody else puts it there, but I kind of have like it, it, <laughs> There's two that should be like on all of ours. So I've got those at the top and then everything else after it. What's what's the other one, Rob? I'm guessing um, it's the wall. Oh, well, three, three, <laughs> three, three. No. Um, what's going on by Marvin Gaye? Oh, I you know what? I only know like the album cursorily. I, I know the singles and I know the 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 story of the album but and i know that i need to invest time in that album because marvin gay is a genius and the songs that i know from that album are brilliant and the reissues for it have done like just wonders for for it sonically yeah but yes the wall and tommy are probably on everybody's list too exactly exactly all right so you know jump in uh what's the first one on your list that you most want to talk about all right So the first one on my list is actually the first concept album I ever heard. And it was in my father's collection. And when I heard it, I didn't realize it was a concept album because I didn't yet know what a concept album was. (laughs) And that is Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds. Oh, I didn't even think about that one. Which I was, I don't know, six, seven years old. And it blew my fucking mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great pick. I would it, never... it's, a, it's great. And the PBS thing that he did where he did it live was pretty great. Yeah. 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 I think that's an absolutely iconic um, album. It really, in my opinion, is the best version of the War of the Worlds, period. Oh. Um, <laughs> in any media. But it's oh. just, it's so well done. And the the musicians and the singers he's got on it, uh, I mean, it, it really is, to me the first really, really successful attempt at doing a rock opera where it's not just one band, right? Mm -hmm. So you hear about Tommy or or what have you being referred to as a rock opera. Mm -hmm. To me, this is more like that kind of ensemble thing that an opera should be, Mm -hmm. where you have more of a cast. And it just, it's brilliant. That is such a great pick. Rob, give us one of yours. Um, So mine's kind of outside the box. Um, I knew yours would be. I, I was. A, there's a couple. I, was, I think there's going to be a lot more crossover of my entities list than, and I couldn't pin your list down. I'd know anywhere. I, where I you have go. some out of the box ones as well, but I'll get to that. Awesome, but, uh, awesome. And I stayed away from the suede one because I figured that'd be on Antony's. Um, <laughs> but like uh, for me, I 
you know, I, the first time I really got exposed to concept records was obviously Sergeant Pepper and then Tommy and then um, The Wall. Those are the big three, right? Those are the first kind of three ones. I've, and then War of the Worlds. That's kind of the order for me, that the ones I've heard. But so XTC did this crazy, like, retro psychedelic record. They called themselves the Dukes of the Stratosphere. And oh, the whole yeah. record is called Sonic Sunspot. And they did the whole thing in character. Like, they're, you don't see their faces, nothing. So if, you, if they don't tell you it's XTC, you don't know. But the whole thing, you listen to it, and you feel like you're listening to, like, a 60s psychedelic record. It is that good. So, um, yeah, that's that's one of mine. So, Alan, I think it's your turn to talk about a concept album. So I, I was thinking about the first one for me as well. And I'm pretty sure that, well, first of all, it I don't really consider it a concept album, even though a lot of people do. And that's 2112. It yeah. definitely has a concept side. And there are a few things like that, you know, like uh, Hemispheres is another one that um, all four pieces on the album don't like necessarily hold together as one concept. But side one of both of those albums do. Kate Bush has done that a couple of times. Uh, Hounds of Love, the second side, is this whole suite of songs that tells this amazing story about uh, a woman who's uh, at, at sea and she's drowning and she has these visions that sort of keep her from dying, basically, until she can be rescued. And, and it's a, just an, a brilliant thing. So 2112 and Hemispheres, I think, is where it really starts for me. So I'm going to jump from that into the very end of Rush's career. I mean, they were around for over 40 years, and it took them that long to do a full concept album. And that was uh, Clockwork Angels from 2012. It's uh, an absolute, I mean, and ended up being the final Rush album. And what an incredible album for them to go out on. Um, it's, it's sort of the story about the search for truth in a dystopian steampunk kind of world, uh, a world lit only by fire, as the, the lyric says. And I just think it's absolutely amazing. I think it's a little sonically dense. So, you know, when I first got it, I listened to it about, 8,500 times in a row and it, it sort of pounds the eardrums a little bit because it's so thick and so heavy but I think musically it's really really good the story is interesting um, obviously that we're talking about Rush so musically and lyrically it's going to be you know a, a really brilliant album but Neil said and going into recording this he said that I mean he was so inspired by this that he he wanted this album to be like the, the greatest achievement of, of his, as far as drumming and lyrics goes and, you know, 40 something, 41, whatever years into your career. And that's your goal, you know, to, and, and with all the stuff that he achieved over the course of his career, his goal on that last album was that this is going to be the best thing I have ever done. That's my goal to, to top everything else I've ever achieved. And I, I just think that's amazing. And I think he did it too. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I listened to Clockwork Angels, but I would agree. I think it mm -hmm. it does it. Um, it's interesting, Alan. You you mentioned Twenty One Twelve as basically having a concept side, and one of the albums I had on my list was Porcupine Trees: The Incident, 
mm -hmm. which is very similar. It's really, I mean, it was done on two CDs, but if you were to transpose it onto vinyl, it would basically be three sides mm -hmm. in, in old money, as they say, um, <laughs> where the first two sides would be the concept. And then the third side would have basically four tracks that are not in the concept and right i was kind of on the fence is that a concept album is it not and i kind of landed with uh those four songs kind of throw it off so no right again similar story but the next ones i wanted to talk about i wanted to take together because they came out at the same time basically give or take a month and that is and you called it alan queen's rights operation mind crime <laughs> and in the studio at the same time, or roughly, I think they were recording as Operation Mindcrime came out, was Iron Maiden working on their Seventh Son of a Seventh Son album. And yeah. allegedly they heard Operation Mindcrime and went, ah, shit, these guys have done exactly what we're doing and done it way better. <laughs> um, but I think those two albums, as I said, they came out the same year. I think that was 86, 87, somewhere in that time frame. And they, for me, define the heavy metal concept album. Yeah. Um, you know, I think between them, you listen to those two and, and you've got it all. What I love about Operation Mindcrime is the story is so strong mm -hmm. all through it. And it's very easy to follow with um, just listening to the songs. You don't need to do any additional reading. You can get a full idea of the storyline. One, one friend of mine even once asked, or not asked, but said, hmm, I wonder if Big Finish stole some of their ideas from Operation Mindcrime. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just, it's so well done. And Jeff Tate's voice is mm -hmm. absurd. I mean, that is a band at the peak of their power. Yeah. And I don't think Queensryche have done anything nearly as good since. In fact, one of their later albums makes my list of worst ever concept albums but we'll get to that later and i don't think anything they did earlier in their career matched it either it really is the pinnacle for them i i, I totally agree with that and i was going to say the same thing that they were a good band up to that point and yeah. you could you can see a progression from their first album on you know they they get better and better but then there's this just huge leap when they get to mind crime that i mean it's it's kind of staggering and I think it absolutely. And you, I think in one of our previous episodes, you described it as the gold standard for the metal concept album. And I a hundred percent agree. Um, and such a strong album with some great songs that work on their own, you know, without having to support the overall concept. And so, and I think so. it's got the best of both worlds as far as I'm concerned. I think it's just amazing. Yeah. I've, I will happily pull up a track just randomly on Spotify and listen to it, or I can listen to the whole thing. I exactly. Mean, to your point, you don't need to listen to it from start to end, but it is magical when you do. It absolutely is. And then just to very quickly touch on Seventh Son. I mean, mm. I think that one is so interesting because it's, it really is the last in what I think of as Iron Maiden's golden era. Yeah, because you have that run with Number of the Beast, Power Slave, um, Peace of Mind, um, Somewhere in Time, and then Seventh Son. And then yeah. after that, you have No Prayer for the Dying and Fear of the Dark, which I think are huge disappointments mm -hmm. after that. So again, they peak with it. And you listen to it, and it is once again a band at the absolute peak 
of yeah. their abilities. They're all firing on all cylinders, um, whether it's Bruce with his vocals, Steve Harris with his typical bass thunder, uh, you know, the kind of gallop he does. Uh, it's it's so good. And I think the Clairvoyant, which is the second to last track, maybe, is one of my favorite Iron Maiden tracks of all time. Mm -hmm. um, it's just such a solid, solid album. Yeah. You, you, you cannot go wrong with that entire period of Iron Maiden that you just laid out. Every album is so incredibly strong. I mean, it's just a golden run that few bands achieve that kind of thing. So it's hard to measure up anything after that. It's hard to measure up to that. I mean, it's just monstrous. Exactly. I'll shut up now for a bit. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Um, so yeah, I'll segue into into kind of a, a little different direction, but kind of also the same direction. Um, so in 2010, and then three years later in 2013, uh, Christopher Lee did two concept records. Uh, Charlemagne, oh my God. Charlemagne by the Sword of the Cross, or Charlemagne, the Omens of Death. Holy crap. And I don't know if you've heard these, but no, <laughs> they're amazing. They're, they, the first time you listen to them is kind of like a novelty record, right? You're kind of like, right. what, what is this? Right. But the second time you're like, you're sucked in as like a historical record. Then it's also a metal record. And then it's frigging Christopher Lee. They're both pretty great. Um, and if you you know if you've never heard Christopher Lee sing, you really can't really call it singing, but it's really really interesting. And um, both of those, and then also um, the Frank Sinatra record in the wee small hours, just a solidly great record from the like golden days of Capitol Records. It's just really really great. Gotta say, I'd never thought of that Sinatra album as a concept album, but now you mention it. He did three. He did like three in a row, but it is it is a full-on concept album. The uh that in the Wee Small Hours is just not only a great selection of songs, but it's like he's got the whole atmosphere down. He's got I mean, both him and Christopher Lee, it's probably the only time Christopher Lee and Frank Sinatra have ever been compared anywhere. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um they both had a concept, they both executed it. And the production on it was great. I mean, the, the Sinatra uh, concept albums he did, all of them have um, this very great sense of orchestra and strings and arrangements. Everything's placed right where it should be. And he knows where he wants to be in each song, you know. And Christopher mm -hmm. Lee is just having fun, right? And it's, it's just so amazing on so many different levels. If you learn nothing else from the podcast tonight, you will learn that Christopher Lee made two heavy metal records. And, and I think that's one of those things that most people have at least heard. You know, it's a mm -hmm. fact that people have in their head. But, you know, I don't know that that many people have actually listened to him, oh, myself included. So I, I think <sighs> I need to rectify that. Yeah, they're worth a listen. Awesome. Particularly, I, I think I sent um, Alan on the side. I sent you one of the tracks that is fantastic. It's just... <sighs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's talk about where all this stuff comes from. Let's get into Sgt. Pepper. That's one of those records that, um, you know, there is a concept behind it. Does every song on the album support a concept? So the idea was McCartney wanted to uh, sort of like create a fictitious band that uh, the Beatles would be performing as this fictitious band and that would give them the freedom of making a record that 
they could like free themselves from the burden of being the Beatles and it would allow them to do whatever they wanted to do musical experimentation as much as they wanted because they don't have to live up to the expectations of what the Beatles are. They would be doing an album as this other band, Sergeant Pepper. So uh, tell me what you think about, about that album and your thoughts of it as a concept album. I would think, I mean, I think it's a fantastic album. I want to preface what I'm about to say with that. I mean, it is one of the all-time greats. It's, again, the Beatles at the absolute height of their powers. They've got a lot of their success behind them, and they're starting to experiment. Yeah. I think of it more as like a proto-concept album. It's not quite there. To your point, Alan, they mm -hmm. are basically doing an album as another band so that they can put out whatever the hell they want. It's loosely a concept, but it's not what I think of as, uh, and what I referred to earlier as kind of the story concept album. Um, right, right. But it's a fantastic album, and I, I have no doubt it laid the groundwork for a lot of what came next from other bands. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I really think without Sgt. Pepper, you don't get Ogden's Nut Gone Flake, Small Faces which I think is one of the first kind of true, true concept albums. Um, and Sgt. Pepper 100% laid the way for that. If you get a chance to really check this out, the Howard Goodall special on uh, Sgt. Pepper that was on PBS is amazing because he deconstructs it song by song, but then he also recreates how they made the records. And oh, interesting. How they made the songs. And he also talks about like, they had an idea from start to finish of what they wanted the album to be. So things like when I'm 64 and how that fits into, you know, Penny Lane and all the other, you know, all the other stuff. It's really interesting how they got the ideas, how they made it, the execution of it. What I love about it though, outside of the um, musicality of it is the, the, they sort of really bought into the album as like a whole piece of art. So the packaging, and, you know, the pictures of like, okay, who are all these people on, on the cover? And they really do dove in full on into it. And I, I love that. That and the Kinks, Village Green Preservation Society, I think are my two favorite sort of records of that time that are, that are concept-y. Yeah, I was honestly a little bit surprised that you didn't bring up um, Small Faces with Ogden's. Well, you brought up Small Faces, so I didn't bring it up. <laughs> I, I had a feeling it might be on your list, though. No, I mean, I yeah, I mean, I would put that in there, too, with the Kinks thing as well. But, um, I mean, the Small Faces is the one I came to after the other two. Right. Um, and, which, you know, I said, I think that if that record wasn't made after sort of those other two records, it would have a much higher stature. And I think yeah. it deserves a higher stature than it gets. Um, I would agree. I and I think the big, I think the big problem too is that you know anybody who put a concept record out after Sgt. Pepper's for like ten years had to sort of like live in that shadow, um, and I and that's kind of sad. There's a lot of really great stuff in there too. Well, you know? particularly in that kind of mainstream where you had bands like the Beatles, the Kinks, but once you start looking at prog and kind of that burgeoning scene whether it was in the Court of the Crimson King, whether it's The yeah. Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, mm -hmm. um, Dark Side of the Moon to an extent, I think yeah. those are seen a little bit differently and, and really shine on their own. 
But if you're looking at the yeah. the more kind of mainstream pop and rock genres, um, yeah, you're 100% right. But I also think, too, that those prog records you mentioned sort of are a nice sort of segue into the stuff Kraftwerk did. Oh, you're, absolutely. You know, I think that's a beautiful segue, you know, to get from Sgt. Pepper to Audubon or Trans, Trans Europe Express. You know, I think that that's, or even um, Radioactivity. Um, I think that that sort of natural flow in styles. And then once you get the craft work, you know, you get the MF Doom, you get the Tribe Called Quest stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very interesting how it sort of, it, it all has a lineage, you know, it's kind of interesting. And then right. the 80s, it kind of, to me at least, the 80s, it kind of, except for Kate Bush and some other folks, it kind of got weird. It did. It did. And, and you had in the 80s that kind of neo-prog movement with... Yeah. Marillion, Pendragon, etc. And I think Marillion, in my opinion, and I, I self-disclosed, I'm a huge Marillion fan. Yeah. Though, so, you know, but I think they did one of the best concept albums of the 1980s with Misplaced mm -hmm. Childhood, yeah. which was designed to basically, I, I, I remember listening to the concert where they first played it before it was released and Fish, the singer, described it as, this is our next album. It has two tracks. They're called Side One and Side Two. Yeah. And they just played the whole thing in its entirety. That's when I discovered Merlion, too, is it was kind of like they were writing about the magazines about what is this? You know, it was like, yeah. oh, ooh. So. And I, I think that's one of the only really brilliant concept albums of the 80s. As I look down my list, it's, it's 70s and really yeah. 2000s 2010s i mean lou reed new york i don't i can't remember the year of that but um yeah there's not much it went decidedly out of vogue and then interestingly you know i think lately there's been a lot of experimentation with it in pop music and in a hip-hop yeah. which you know is, is surprising but and i think you know janelle monet her records that are concept records are just phenomenal and yeah. i think that her Sort of reviving that for hip-hop and soul music and fusing it together is great uh the mf doom the mf doom stuff is just bizarrely great uh, well and, and then you have kanye west doing concept albums which is not something i ever thought i'd be talking about um yeah, but, and, Ken, and kendrick lamar who yeah you know but then you look at the other side of things in in the pop world um britney spears's britney jean album is apparently considered a concept album Mm -hmm. Who knew? One of my personal favorites is Marina, formerly Marina in the Diamonds, Electra Heart, which is one of those thematic ones. Um, as a opposed record, to, though. I love it so much. I, <laughs> I saw her live on that tour, and she is uh, she's an artist. I mean, she just she's blessed to have a record label that lets her basically mm -hmm. put out whatever album she wants to put out. Yeah, and I think now because. The single is basically superfluous with digital music. People can get back to that, you know? Right. Um, I mean, there is still a single, but everybody's leaking tracks. And, you know, the idea of like, here's your single, you know, is kind of gone. So I think we're kind of in this interesting renaissance for concept albums. And I, I think I think hip hop is leading the way with it, you know? And there's some really, really cool. Those Kendrick Lamar records are just incredible. Well, when I was first really getting into concept albums 15 years ago, when I was at the height of my prog phase, that's definitely a sentence that I never thought I would hear anyone say, hip hop is leading the way on bringing the concept album back. I probably yeah. would have laughed in your face. But I think a lot of it, you know, I think the big motivation for that though is, is parliament. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think Parliament just sort of set the table and everybody listened to those Parliament records. And that's kind of, you know, there's there's a direct lineage from Bootsy to Questlove that I think, you know, really with the concept records. And I think, too, when, when Roots made their concept records, their first couple, and they took off and were so critically accepted, that made everybody else kind of think about, let's tell a story, you know? Yeah. So Well, I, I think we should also mention what was probably the most mainstream and talked about concept record of the 2010s, which was Beyonce's Lemonade. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. that was huge. And, you know, she did that wonderful hour-long uh, film to go with it as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's played a huge part in the renaissance of the concept album and, mm-hmm. you know, it, it becoming mainstream again. Yeah. I And the indie music is the, the close follower to it, too. You know, um, for me, that, that Neutral Milk Hotel record is just, I mean, having worked in a record store and a radio station when that thing dropped in the airplane over the sea, um, you, you couldn't escape from it. It was everywhere. And all the songs sort of like they flow together and they're nice, you know. Um, and I think that record, not until you get to the Flaming Lips Yoshimi versus the, the the Pink Robots, do you really sort of get any kind of weird, odd indie thing, right? Yeah. And they're both great for different reasons, you know. So, well, the Flaming Lips, uh, <laughs> just in general, they're they're bonkers. Um, yes. But it's it's interesting how how cyclical this is. You know, in mm-hmm. the 70s, everyone was doing concept albums. And then in the 80s, it became a niche thing with neo-prog and, and metal bands. And in the 90s, it became even more niche. Yeah. And then suddenly it's exploded back on the scene. Let's talk about the 80s real quick. And I'm going to tell you what killed concept albums. There's two. MTV. No, no, no. There's two concept albums that killed concept albums. Okay. The, the Elder by Kiss. And Kilroy was here by Styx. Both concept albums, both were shit. Well, that's not true. I absolutely love The Elder, but it was a it was a creative chance that they took, and it backfired. And um, you know, I don't, I don't, I think that after those two, and and Kilroy was just not good. The concept was kind of it was interesting, but it was kind of weak. Um, it's basically rock and roll versus the moral majority. And in the storyline, it's like slightly future. And there's an organization called the MMM, the Majority for Musical Morality. And they've outlawed rock and roll. And they've imprisoned the biggest rock star of their day, which was a character that Dennis Young was playing, Robert Oren Charles Kilroy. His initials are R-O-C-K. Come on. <laughs> I mean, come on. And, and you know, it was a weak concept. And... And I think, I mean, that was just the sign that the concept album was basically over for a while. To be fair, Mr. Roboto is a great song. Oh, it's a song. <laughs> it's one of my go-tos at karaoke. I will say that uh, Styx, in the last couple of tours, like, haven't played that in decades. And last couple of tours, they mm-hmm. pulled that out of their asses and put it in their show as an encore. And yet such a huge surprise, especially the first time they did it. The audiences go nuts. I'm sure they do. It's a lot of fun and it's just cheesy as hell, but you know. Yeah. So yeah. I think that was it for concept albums for a while. 
suddenly in the mainstream. As I said, the ne right. neo prog and, right. and metal scenes did their own thing. Right. I right. do think, though, if we're going to talk about the 80s, um, we do need to talk about Husker Du's Ed Arcade, um, which came out in 84. It's this concept record. It's kind of a simple thing. Basically, this kid hates his life at home and leaves and realizes the outside world is just as miserable as the one he left, right? But at the time, there really wasn't anybody doing sort of, I guess what we would now call alternative music, doing a concept record. And... When you listen to Bob Mould now do some of the stuff from Zen Arcade, those records sound really good separate from the whole concept album, but they also, as a concept album, sound incredibly great. Um, and that's, you know, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm thinking of the 80s concept records, I'm like, okay, there's the Kate Bush stuff, some of the XTC stuff, and then Zen Arcade. Um, and I'm not, I'm, again, I'm reaching. I right. can't really, you know. Right. But it, if the 80s were a dead period the 90s were even more so yeah i mean yeah. the only thing i've got from the 90s and it's one of my absolute favorites is marillion again with brave which is one of the most emotional records i've ever had the pleasure of listening to on the back it says listen to it loud and in the dark <laughs> um, right because you need to do that to process it but beyond that i I don't think I have a single record from the nineties on my list. I have Blur Park Life. Uh, yeah, um, I suppose. Yeah, and but and the big one is the very first Enigma album, the Enigma nineteen ninety. The thing about Enigma is that, you know, whoever thought Gregorian chants would be a thing, right? Um what? but that thing was everywhere. And then after that record, everybody was sort of doing these like knockoff concept albums. That's when you started getting like these concept like bagpipe records and concept like any kind of organ <laughs> organ stuff right any type of like secular music that they could turn into like a pop rock thing they did you know yeah and thankfully you know we had bowie and nine inch nails around to kind of steer the clear of that on on that note alan can i make a guess as to your one from the 90s <laughs> i'm i'm sure you have it nailed is it bowie with outside absolutely Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that one, I think, started out being a true concept album. Um, yeah. And then it got, uh, well, the record label stepped in. They played the album for the label and they're like, well, this is really nice, but you've got to give us something that we can like try and make a single. It's a, it's sort of a near future. So this, this came out in 95 and it's set at the turn of the century. So it's at the end of 99. And it's uh, a guy called Nathan Adler who is investigating a series of art crimes in this really dark sort of dystopian world. And uh, and I think the concept is really strong and the material is great. But the record label was like, we need singles. So they went back and they added some things like Hello Space Boy and Through These Architect Eyes. You, you have to really stretch the concept to include those songs into the narrative which I don't think works. I think the narrative works without those songs. And those are just like bonus tracks as essentially, but they're great songs. And, um, you know, and I think it, it's a, it's a, it's very close to being a, a superlative concept album. And I really love Hello Space Boy, but I, I'm inclined to agree, Alan, the record label should stay out of it. <laughs> Particularly when there's an artistic intent to make a concept album, they can't just yeah. come in and say, you got to, you got to give us a single, man. Right. Well, I mean, that's 
that kind of gets away from the artistic intent, unless you're going to do what Porcupine Tree did with the incident and just tack four songs at the end once the concept is done. Right. And and a couple of those tracks on outside are the last two tracks, so they are kind of tacked on. But Space Boy happens like right smack in the middle of side one. Right. And so it feels like it's supposed to be folded in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just don't think it works as well. I do have one other from the 90s. Yeah, I do too. And it's, it's more of an EP than an actual full record. And that mm-hmm. is another Porcupine Tree uh, record, which is Voyage 34, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is okay. from their insane psychedelic era. And the idea behind it is basically a group of friends gets together and takes LSD. And for one of them... He has had 33 successful, successful is probably the wrong word, uneventful LSD trips where everything has been happy and fun. And then Voyage 34 turns to out to be a bad trip. And it's just such an interesting record because it's mostly instrumental with occasional narration. But the instrumentation really tells mm-hmm. the story of the bad trip um, without the need for words to describe it. It's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah, and I also uh, want to throw into the Nine Inch Nails Downward Spiral record. Um, yeah. Which kind of starts, which plays on this idea of like this guy's holding a gun and he's descending into mania. And is he really crazy or is he just angry? And there's kind of some interesting dynamics playing in there as well. I, you know, when I first heard it, I did not think of it as a concept album. And then when I saw him um, with Bowie, he introduced, you know, a couple songs he was talking about how because he played the record mostly in order and he talked about live on stage how it was a concept and i started listening to it as a concept record I'm like oh okay so that one too and you know i think it's too kind of an early 90s to mid 90s thing i don't think it's a late 90s thing at all i think it's we start getting acid house and summer of love and all this other stuff and the that sort of idea of a concept record is kind of just gone yeah Mm-hmm. So do we want to talk about concept albums that really haven't worked well, or that we just thought were terrible? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Cause I've, you know, the worst two on my list I've already named <laughs> and they aren't that bad. <laughs> There's a special place in hell for Judas Priest with Nostradamus. Oh yeah. 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 They had no business making that record. <laughs> um, synthesizers have no place on a Judas Priest record. And it was primarily a Glenn Tipton ego trip. Um, there you go. So no, thank you. <laughs> and then the other one that I alluded to earlier, having made one of the greatest heavy metal concept albums of all time, Queensryche come in and make American Soldier. This absolutely God fucking awful concept <clears throat> album that should never have been made. And candidly, Queensryche should have already given up making music by then anyway. Um, and I'm get, getting bitchy about this, so I'm just going to stop talking about it now. Oh, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> well, I mean, podcasts aren't any good if there aren't strong feelings. Yeah, this is it, true. So. <laughs> um, I will just say that Lulu by Metallica and Lou Reed in, is god-awful. Oh, it's genius, Rob. I know it's genius, but it's just—it's <laughs> genius it on a higher plane. Both of those things. <laughs> yeah, it's genius on a high plane. It really there is. You go. In the same way that machine music is, um, but it's also just—I want my concept albums. I don't want to have to work work on it. 
You know, mm. I don't want it to be. And the problem with that record is, you know, as I got older, I got it right. But it's just when you hear it, it's such a slamming of convergences of weird voices with weird styles that it's it's kind of jarring. So it really will take you several years to get past that. Are um, you are you telling me that you did not appreciate James Hetfield yelling "I am the table" on your very first listen? I'm. Shocked. I did not. I did not. And, I was, and are are you also telling me that you actually spent years working on trying to like that album? No, not years. But the thing is, I one, you use the word years. Yes. To be fair, you know, I got mine. I got a. I got a promo from a label. First couple, first four months, I had it. I listened to it maybe twice. I'm like, okay, I don't get it. Then after Lou Reed passed, I made it a point to listen to all of his records in order. I listened to it. I'm like, okay, I need to go through this all the way through. Listened to it all the way through, moved on. A couple days later, I'm like, why is this still in my head? Right. And when it's one of those records that when you look at it in terms of the big picture, you kind of get what he's going. I don't think they really explain the concept very well. Maybe that's part of it. But, um, I also think that by the time it came out, there were a lot more Metallica fans around than there were Lee Reed fans. Agreed so on that point. For Metallica fans, it makes no sense. For Lou right. Reed fans, yeah. if you are a hardcore Lou Reed fan and have listened to him, as you say, Rob, in order, it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So the context does sometimes matter. And I will also say, and this is going to make me absolutely vilified in many circles, that Pinkerton by Weezer is absolutely one of the worst pieces of art made in the century, the 20th century by anybody ever. Oh, I'm with you. But I think Weezer are just shit anyway. So, <laughs> God, I mean, oh, wow. I, I think we've said it before on the show. We don't get Weezer. I don't mind them at all. I, that's, that's the best I, I can do. All I, don't I have mind to say them. is, if, if you if you could if you make Toto by Africa sound like a piece of garbage music more than you're you're really trying. It's so speak, it's, it, it's just no. I I could go on about that forever, and I I will just stop because it's you know if you want to be a good parent, don't let your kids do that. Um, so um, I'm gonna set you off on another one since we talked about it. But Smashing Pumpkins put out a number of concept albums and. <sighs> Thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> I just I just have never invested any time in the pumpkins. Mm. I just it's just not my thing. I've I got hate... one I've got one friend and one ex-girlfriend who absolutely love them, and those are the only people I know who even like them. Yeah. It's yeah, a it's, just... it's a it's a slog for me. I don't I just don't I just don't dig it. That's that's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm very proud of you. Well, thank you. So if we're talking about, uh, like, we talked about some R&B and hip-hop albums that were surprisingly conceptual. Um, I want to I talk about Green Day, American Idiot. Yep. Green yep. Day is sort of like the modern revival of punk, or at least that's how they and their record label build them. Um, and then they come out in 2004 with American Idiot, which is this story about a lower middle-class adolescent sort of anti-hero character who doesn't understand the world that he lives in. And it references the Iraq war and nine 11 and, you know, criticizes the government and all this kind of stuff. So it's more of like, I mean, it's not an overtly political album, but that's the sort of like the bent of the, the storyline. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's a, 
I think it's a really good album. It's got some great moments on it. Um, and then they turned it into a Broadway musical. Mm-hmm. Who would ever have expected that from Green Day? So I think that one's another one that's a surprising inclusion in our lists. Yeah. Well, and I think to your point, Alan, you know, Green Day influenced that whole pop punk revival. Oh, yeah. know, without Green Day, you don't get Blink-182, you don't get Sum 41. And notably for this conversation, you don't get My Chemical Romance, who mm-hmm. put out their own concept album with the Black Parade. Right. Or right. Panic at the Disco, who I think did one too. Yeah. I mean, there you know, you the, 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 they really were responsible for the introduction of the concept album to this entire genre, for better or for worse. Exactly. And I mean, I was a teenager when American Idiot came out. Um, I think I was 17, you know, mm-hmm. and at that age being very disaffected with um, the Iraq war, you yeah. know, that was going on. And I, I was 16 when that went down and very much against it. And, you know, it, it made a lot of sense. And, right, you know, the, that really was the sound of a generation. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I think it's a. I think it's a really good album. I really dig it, and uh, still listen to it today. And had tickets to go see them when they were touring, and then that got canceled. And you know, yeah. anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I, it's one that I really love. It's not punk necessarily in the in the classic sense of the word punk, but I think it's still really really good. There's one other album I realize we're coming up on the hour that. You said I would talk about Alan, and so far I've only mentioned it tangentially. And that is one of the first concept albums I consciously knew was Mm. a concept album going into listening to it. And that is Genesis with The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Oh, man. Which, you know, a lot of people will point to Pink Floyd's output of that kind of era as the pinnacle of concept albums. But for me, it's The Lamb. I mean, it's... It's Peter Gabriel's mad genius at its very, very best. Everything from, you know, Raoul through to the Slipper Men. Um, the, the costumes that went with the stage show were bonkers. Um, Absolutely. You know, the songs, some of those, again, you can listen to in isolation. Carpet Crawlers, uh, yeah. the title track, even Counting Out Time. Yeah. And, you know, The Cage still. Especially, even, Yes. Even to this day, forms part of Genesis's live show with Phil Collins probably singing wildly out of tune because he's way too old. But <laughs> that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> no, I agree, man. What a what a great album. Um, weird concept and just the most bizarre elements just thrown in. And you know, and I I, I don't know that when they started this that Gabriel knew that he was on his way out the door. And just decided, I'm just going to throw every bizarre fucking thing at this that I that I can and that I want to. And this is my parting shot. I don't know that that was really there. He, you know, he was absent for or at least distant for part of the making of because he had family issues and, Mm -hmm. you know, he was involved in another project. And, you know, he was a, a bit more difficult to work with you know he he insisted that he would write all the lyrics and this would be his concept mm-hmm. and blah 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 so you know b- but musically i just think it's amazing and yeah. if you see a band like the musical box or um 
there's a band called Abacab, which I think they're in South Carolina, play the whole album top to bottom. Oh my gosh, so yeah. good. And I mean, you, you look at it and the influences that they had um, or that Gabriel had when writing it ranged out from everything from West Side Story through to Pilgrim's Progress, uh, yes. even the works of Alejandro Hodorowsky, which uh, I mean, that that's out there mm -hmm. in itself. Um, the, the whole thing's just complete genius. And it, I, it's to me, it's, it's also um, it's got shades of uh, Orpheus and Eurydice. Because he's mm -hmm. essentially going into the underworld to rescue his brother, John, yeah. from this weird, you know, hellish kind of world that he's fallen into. Just like Orpheus tries to rescue his love, Eurydice, from uh, from the bowels of hell. So I see that parallel, too. And, you know, I think the best concepts come from the people who are the most literary minded. Yeah. Um. Peter Gabriel is so well read and so intelligent. And you, you know, you have Pete Townsend who thinks in literary terms. I mean, he, he called Tommy a rock opera. He called his solo album white city, a novel. I mean, he thinks in different terms mm -hmm. than, and well, Bruce Dickinson too is an yeah. incredibly well read and very literate man. And, you know, well, let's, let's not forget that both, um, Peter Gabriel and Bruce Dickinson are, I, I don't know about um, the guys from The Who, but Dickinson and Gabriel are both products of the British private education system. Mm. Gabriel in particular was educated at Charterhouse, which is one of the best boarding schools in the country. Yeah. Um, and particularly your comparison to Orpheus. I mean, in Greek classical literature, any hero worth their salt has to go down to the underworld and return. <laughs> exactly. what they all do odysseus does it you know it's just it's a thing it's a mm -hmm. literary trope and right to see that pop up is no surprise given peter gabriel's mm -hmm. education right and even you know that point of literacy if you go back to 1940 when woody guthrie did dust bowl class a dust bowl balance that's a very literate album in terms of issues and what he's talking about you can tell that there's somebody there who's got not necessarily an English schoolhouse education, but a very uh, book smart education. Mm. And also, if you listen to that whole string, I think there's like five Johnny Cash concept albums. Mm -hmm. All of those are also um, sort of the product of somebody who's at least well read. And some of the Roger Williams records, too, I think, are the same way. And I would argue, too, that the Childish Gambino records are the same way. Somebody who's got a head in reading a lot. So. Yeah. Well, I think in general to that point, Rob, you know, a concept album is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And there's something there's something about it that's almost high art in kind of the music modern musical sense in the same way mm -hmm. as writing a, a a novel that's not just designed to be a pulp novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. So naturally the people who make concept albums are going to be those who are better educated or better read, i.e. self-educated, if they didn't have a formal education. Right. Because they've got to have that mindset in order to be able to weave a compelling story. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so we're just about out of time. Uh, are there any albums that we didn't touch on that you would just want to throw a mention of in really quickly? I want to talk very quickly about Avantasia's The Metal Opera, because I think that was a very, very interesting project that started in the early 2000s of... Uh, Tobias Samnett from Ed Guy deciding he wanted to basically do 
a heavy metal opera and he wrote the whole thing got in a whole bunch of singers from different bands to come in and play parts and then he mm -hmm. did something like five albums of it it's really fun it's really interesting and it is uh it's quite quite epic so worth a listen yeah i'm gonna jump in uh magnetic fields 69 love songs it's long but man it's great um arcade fire the suburbs i know they do a ton of concept records but that thing still holds up and then uh public service broadcasting the race for space a whole record about the space race and <laughs> yuri gagarin no it's really great they use sound samples and you know they kept you got yuri gagarin on there you've got you know john glenn you've got every kind of sample in that thing and they also did one uh after that that i forgot the name of but it's all about uh mining disasters and then they have a whole record about you know, climbing Mount Everest. So they do a lot of really cool concept records, but that race for space record is, is just solid. And uh, talking heads, fear of music, that one too. Mm. Yeah. I didn't think about that one. Yeah. I've got a few that we didn't get to touch on. One is uh, the Alan Parsons project, I robot, which um, was intended to be based on Asimov's uh, I robot stories the previous album that they had done was all based on Edgar Allan Poe works and they wanted to do the same thing with Asimov stories and Asimov was completely behind the idea. He loved the idea, but the rights had already been granted to someone else to do an adaptation. So they couldn't do it. So they basically kept the title I robot, but they dropped the comma between I and robot and uh, wrote more generic songs about robots instead of about specifically his stories and there you go and i think it's a great album there's um a yes album called tales from topographic oceans which i just love every second of a lot of yes fans find it a little overblown and a little you know bloated but i don't i think every single second of that album is perfect it's uh, a two record set it's four sidelong pieces that are based on the four Shastras of Hindu texts, very loosely based, I will say. Um, I think one of the other band members criticized John Anderson for only having a very cursory knowledge of this stuff that he's actually writing <laughs> these lengthy pieces about, but uh, one that I absolutely love. And then, you know, I mentioned Kilroy was here as a, a, a not so successful concept album by Styx from 1983. But that's not the only concept album they did. In 2017, they did an album called The Mission with their current lineup, which is all about uh, a space mission to Mars. And holy shit, I love that album so much. It is of, you know, Styx's 40 whatever year career. It's my in my top three albums that they've ever released. Grand Illusion, Pieces of Eight, the two mid-70s classics and the mission from 2017. So there you go. All right. So that brings us to our end. We are going to be back next week. And Anthony's got the, the lead next week talking about glam rock. That's going to be a good one. So Anthony, for now, where can people find you on the internet? Outside of this show, you can find me on the watches in the fourth dimension podcast, where Myself and three of my friends are watching our way through the entirety of Doctor Who. We are currently uh, in the John Perwey era, having just wrapped up season nine. So you can find us uh, 
on all of the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, etc., etc. And you can also find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at @watches4d. Rob, how about you? Uh, you can find me uh, on the Need Coffee podcast for uh, called Weekend Justice and also just writing for them. And also on KDHX on Wednesdays, all the shows are archived for two weeks. So if you have a life and you're busy on a Wednesday, you can just go to KDHX.org. All the shows are archived for two weeks. I've got my little publishing company, CosmicPress.com. And I also have another podcast talking all about Star Trek called Earth Station Trek part of the earth station one network and uh we just did an interview with one of the cast members talking about a new project that he's working on sort of a bonus episode and uh our next episode is going to be a weird period where we have three weeks of overlap between the end of discovery season four and the beginning of star trek picard season two so we've got two big episodes to review in our next one so with that, I will say goodbye for now. See you again next week when we're here to talk about glam rock. I don't suppose Bowie will get mentioned in that at all. No, not at all. No, never. we're going to ignore him. Exactly. And we'll see you around the horn next time. So take care, everybody. And we're out of here. <laughs>